Father, you bless us so many ways. You bless us, too, with our grandchildren. And it was ironic this week that as I got my new cell phone, I ran into a video of my grandchild. He memorized the Pledge of Allegiance. One nation under God, divisible with liberty and justice for all. And I thought as we move from the pledges of our faith, we also pledge as a nation. We move from our spiritual background to being called into the world, to be a part of the world, not from it. Father, help us as we study the injustice of the world to remember that we can follow our laws to the best of our ability. But we will follow your world, your kingdom, your laws to the end of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. How's everyone doing today? Yeah, it's good to see you all again. <clears throat> More fun topics along the way. Somebody was asking me yesterday about doing this. They go, you put in, you work on these presentations for days. <laughs> and like, you, you pour over it and pour over it and pour over it. And they go, uh, you know, what are you doing this for? <laughs> and I said, well, it isn't just the talk. It's that I, I learn. It's like, I really enjoy doing this because these topics that I think I know something about, when I go and actually research them, like, do I really know? Like the whole idea that Jesus was a pacifist. I never could get that to reconcile with the fact that um, not only do, do Christians serve in the armed services, but we have chaplains, we have people in the armed services that represent the church. And that used to kind of bother me. <laughs> it's like, well, if Jesus is a pacifist. So I looked, at, I looked into this because I, I thought, well, that's just one basic question. But of course, there are many other questions. What is the church's relationship to war, to violence, to intervention? And uh, we're going to look mainly at its, its relationship to war, but uh, toward the end, I want to look at its relationship to related issues. So, what are the views of war and violence in the Hebrew Bible? Again, I had some assumptions that it was a very violent book and that there was a lot of war, and I would be right. <laughs> but, looking at it in context, some things made more sense. And I also hadn't really thought about that many of the prophets uh, would be closer to what we would call pacifists, even though I don't think I understood that until I did this research. What exactly is a pacifist? Um, because a lot of times I think we think that being a pacifist means that you just do nothing, right? Um, but I don't think that's what we're talking about, and so we'll think about that issue as well. Okay, so uh, what are the views of war in the New Testament? And then I have a section called Reality Check. <laughs> Here's what the church really did, <laughs> even though it had its theoretical positions. Then, uh, I always like to kind of go back, right? Okay, so we know what the church did, and we know what the church policies are, 
but let's look at some things that Jesus actually said, kind of double reality check. And then, of course, the series is continuing this celebration of the Reformation. So I want to look at a couple of reformers, what they said, and then look specifically on Presbyterian policies on war, terrorism, conscientious objection, and gun control, which I think are all related issues, because if we're talking about violence, war is the most extreme, but all these other things are part of the attitude toward it. And then, of course, what can we do? All right, so you probably already know, or like me, think you know, what the Hebrew Bible was about in terms of war. And of course, I'm quoting a whole lot here from a guy named John Wood, uh, who I just thought said it better than I could, so I'm gonna quote him a lot at the beginning. Uh, We cannot understand the Old Testament without reference to war. As he notes, that's a country about the size of Vermont. Actually, it's kind of (laughs) Vermont-shaped. Uh, located in a strategic Syrian-Palestinian corridor and all the surrounding nations covered it. So first of all, if you're in the path of great empires, are you gonna always be caught up in some kind of a war, whether you want to or not? So not only did uh, Israel become created through battles and war with the, the Canaanite population, but also they were a buffer zone between Egypt in the south and Mesopotamian empires in the northeast, and it never stopped all the way throughout history, ultimately leading to their destruction. But one thing that Wood points out is that the narratives in the Old Testament, as bloody and as violent as they are, are more restrained than the accounts by, say, Ashurnasipal, the Assyrian who carved in stone, with their blood I dyed the mountain red like red wool, I cut off their heads, I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. Not the kind of thing you really want to brag about, but he did. And so they're saying as bloody as the Old Testament is, it isn't as bloody as as some other accounts, at least they don't brag as much about the blood. And another thing, like I just said, is striking how many times the biblical prophets condemn Israel's militarism because there's a difference between having a culture with an army and having a culture that survives wars and being militaristic, isn't there? So often what the biblical prophets would condemn is that they begin to trust not in God but in military power. I was like, hmm, that sounds familiar. <laughs> you just said, and God we trust is in the thing, uh, you know, but uh, is it more like in the military we trust? I don't know. Um, so he said, a mystique of violence permeated Israel at society in the 8th century, and the prophets cried out against it. So I hadn't really thought about that part of the Old Testament. We think about the battle parts, the bloodier parts. Um, but the prophets, in fact, if you read Jeremiah, one of the surprising things Jeremiah says is uh, they know that the, you know, the Babylonians are, are going to, to take over, and he just says, surrender. And it's not going to do any good. They're going to wipe us out. They're gonna, <laughs> we can't win. Surrender. He's considered a traitor, <laughs> thrown in a well, um, treated abysmally, and finally drug off to Egypt because a lot of them realized at the last minute, we are gonna die, (laughs) and they took Jeremiah with them to Egypt. 
Um, so the prophets knew that trusting a military might was not the way to go, that sometimes the way to go is to let go, right, to, to surrender. Now, not a popular idea then or now, but you can see that's not exactly what I thought the Old Testament was about. It was always about conquering and etc. But at times it was about knowing what thing to do, right? Fight or not. Jeremiah knew something about the Babylonians. Babylonians, if you did make an agreement with them, they wouldn't wipe you out. They would establish people in power who didn't have power. So they would take the, the wealthier, powerful people out and they would bring other people up into power. Now, they're dependent on the Babylonians for their power, but that's the way they did things. They did that even though uh, they defeated Jerusalem, but they, they would have done that anyway and a lot more people would have lived. Also, the, the Old Testament understands uh, the concept of holy war. So we hear of, often of the Muslim concept of jihad, but we don't often talk about that the Jews had a similar concept of holy war. Um, Gwilin Jones believed that their affairs were controlled by the gods and they attributed military successes to the work of their gods. That sounds pretty familiar if you've read the Old Testament. Whenever they'd have a victory, it was God's victory, right? So they had a synergistic idea that God uh, would fight with them, alongside them. So the important strand in Israel's tradition of holy war is the belief that God fought with the nation. So they call this a synergism. The victory is a result of fusion, a divine, and human activity. Now that doesn't mean that you don't prepare because you can see Joshua prepared but he also relied on God. So um, it says classic example of the normal warrior in Israel. The biblical text insists the victory is ultimately from God. His careful military preparation and brilliant strategy were essential. And we see this in the biblical figures Deborah, Gideon, Samson, and King David. So there is a political element to it where they gather, they get good leaders, they have good leadership, they talk about what they're going to do, they strategize. Uh, but at the same time, they believe that God ultimately brings the victory. And King David, of course, and Solomon fit this mold. So the synergistic understanding of holy war is not the only one present. There's another one. So we have um, the idea of holy war, but we also have the beginning of the exit event. There's a firm belief that God fights not through Israel, but for Israel. And this runs all through the prophets as well. This idea that Jeremiah was saying, we don't have to fight because God will fight for us, right? We can surrender, but we won't lose. That's a tough one to navigate mentally. But what he was saying was, you, you don't always have to fight. That God, if God is God, will fight for us. All right, there's also a pacifistic view toward war, which I guess Jeremiah would be a classic example there. Passages, uh, classic passage, God will bring about peace without violence. You see this in Isaiah and Micah and in Jeremiah, this idea of we don't really have to do anything. We don't have to fight. God is in this. And if we recognize that God can work through these other powers, that we don't have to do anything. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob exist to co uh, 
coexisted peacefully with the habits of, of Canaan. We forget this sometimes, but if you go back and reread the story, there's a coexistence there, right? They don't, Abraham wasn't always fighting. He did occasionally uh, go into battle. But for the most part, he, he coexisted, and so did Isaac and Jacob. And the Egyptians even donated items to the Israelites and accompanied them out of Egypt. So the, um, there's kind of a difference between the way the Bible portrays the Pharaoh and his resistance and the people of Egypt. Now, you could say, well, the death of the firstborn children probably motivated them some, <laughs> but they didn't have to give them gifts. They didn't have to do anything. And, and so there is some sense that it isn't entirely a, uh, a portrait of just hostility. Elijah cures an enemy Syrian general, Naaman. Interesting, Syria is still in the news, is it not? <laughs> All right, well, he cures, uh, cures him of leprosy. And Mark, in conclusion to the story, says, and the Arameans no longer came raiding into the land of Israel. Even more important because Arameans were sort of a historical enemy. The obscure prophet Audit challenges the standard treatment of captives by having clothed, fed, and returned to their homeland. These prophets believed that horrible domestic consequences of warfare could be averted by nonviolent initiatives. So my idea at the beginning, not quite true. If you look at some of the prophets, they were kind of modeling a different approach. Now, did they always consistently? No, there are times where you see Elijah and this whole idea of the holy war. But there are other times when you see a sort of pacifism or pacifistic approach. Also in the Old Testament, we have a third view of war, the just war. And this is the one that Christianity is going to kind of inherit. Jephthah's speech in Judges, he asked God to judge the merits of the land dispute with Ammonites, not on the basis that Israel can claim to be God's chosen people, but on reciprocal rights and obligations. So this is more of a, what we might call a secular or legalistic approach to war. King Jehoshaphat, interestingly in Chronicles, Jehoshaphat appears to argue that Judah earlier had waged war with a view to establish an enduring and equitable peace. All right, so this is one of the themes that we see throughout Christian history. Why do we wage war in order to have? Now there is an irony to that <laughs> that has been pointed out many times. How do you have war to have peace? But, of course, there's always the classic example of World War II where they didn't seem, the world seemed to have no choice whatsoever. That there had to be a war to have peace. Um, other ones you could argue, mm, that probably was an excuse rather than a reality. But we see in the Old Testament this whole idea of a just war. Amos condemns the surrounding nations for violating commonly accepted norms of justice. So, the idea is that um, there's a certain responsibility of a government to see that injustices are not occurring inside of their own uh, kingdom or their own country, their own land, their nation, and they have a responsibility to call it out in the cultures of others. And we see this, of course, strongly represented in modern American democracy, this idea that we have a responsibility to have a just society ourselves, but also to see that justice goes out into the world. So in Christian tradition, um, Augustine, Suarez, and Aquinas um, basically used that idea to promote a Christian perception of war. 
And a few passages were justified, not on the basis of perceived direct command from God or unique Israeli theological principle, but on a sense of justice. All right, so the just war tradition coexisted in ancient Israel alongside other understandings. Their experience of being under almost constant threat from neighboring peoples kind of pushed them over the edge. So they tended more toward holy war than just war. And you can see that's why the prophets are trying to say to pull it back and to see that their right is more in terms of justice and not just holy war. So at times they move beyond a visceral response to a more reasoned one. Unfortunately, limited. All right, so the holy war idea continues in Israel and what happens to Israel? They end up getting wiped out by the Babylonians, <laughs> taken over by the Greeks, and then ultimately the Romans. And every time that they fought, it was under this guise of holy war. And uh, so we see where that idea goes. All right, so Christian interpretation. Now we can see that Christians aren't exactly going to go the best road with this if you look at the picture on the right. Okay, so even if you believe in the just war theory, yes, and even if you could say that there are times when people need to stand up for justice and against injustice, it's hard to make a call. <laughs> and Christians have made some pretty crummy calls as to exactly what that means. So Christ, as <laughs> I like that Wood puts this, I would have put this a little more... Uh, more firmly, more scarily, stridently. Some Christians struggle to move beyond the Holy War. <laughs> Historically, I think Christians have had a lot of trouble moving beyond Holy War mentality. And we see evidence of it still today, and I'll show you a little bit of it later. We judge that many other ancient Israelite practices, including polygamy, and this is kind of a similar argument to the one I made last week, and it's pretty much going to be my argument all through this series, that we have to look to principle in the Bible rather than specifics. When you look at specifics, you could end up saying that holy war is some kind of great idea because it just happens so much and they make so many of them. But if you look at principles, it's different. All right, so polygamy in the family, patriarchal treatment of women, monarchy and government, dietary laws and religion. All right, we, we can't go back to those days, and why would we? So why would we go with the holy war argument either? We insist that Jesus Christ is the standard by which all scripture is interpreted. By this standard, we discern that ancient Israel's holy war mentality was more influenced. This is where he gets a little more dangerous because some people would probably disagree with him. But he's looking at it kind of as a historian and saying um, it was more influenced by surrounding cultures than a revelation of God. That... They just kept, kept making some wrong choices in terms of how they saw war and whether God was with them in the war. So arguably, you could say some of the early wars, God was more with them, but when you get into the prophetic times, it doesn't seem like God is with them in war almost any time, especially when they start making allegiances and pacts with Egypt, getting some, themselves into a lot of trouble. They start becoming militaristic. Regardless of whether holy war was normative or ancient Israel, we should acknowledge that holy war is not a proper uh, Christian response to war and conflict. So that leaves us, what other two models? If holy war is off the table, 
Just war and pacifism would be the only other examples. So pacifists and just war positions. They share the presumption against violence, and this is kind of a, almost like a legal phrase that traditionally they'll say that Christianity has a presumption against violence. Are you with me? The trouble is, it also has a presumption for justice. That's the problem. (laughs) As, As Hamlet would say, there's the rub. All right, so I picked him uh, intentionally. This is Einstein. And I picked him uh, because he actually straddled both lines. In the 30s, after World War I, the whole country, I didn't know this until I did some research. Boy, research can change your life. In the 1930s, the largest peace movement ever in the history of the world, except perhaps maybe before the Iraq War, was uh, in that period, bigger than the 60s. More people were involved. More people of all levels of culture. Eleanor Roosevelt was in it. I can't imagine that happening today. The wife of a president getting in an anti-war. <laughs> wow. You know, basically, put it in 60s terms, the president's wife was a hippie. And so... She was, she was ahead of her day. Okay, that's really awful, but, you know, you get my idea. And he was a part of it, too. Einstein, um, being a Jew, he knows the repercussions of war, and he, uh, he knows anti-Semitism. He knows wh- how the world works. And he thought, we're never going to do this again. And then, as Hitler rose to power, he went from pacifism to just war. In this case, though, he was like, in this case. <laughs> okay. So pacifists urge that there's always a nonviolent way to respond to conflict. So are we responding? Are we standing still? No. We're responding to conflict. Not through inaction, but through action that is not violent or alternate to violence. Discussion, meetings, sanctions. We're trying to do avoid war. Just war theorists admit that their approach has been misused. Again, would I think, I would put it more straightly, it's been abused to justify virtually any state violence. But it says, when it's truly justified at all, must be the last resort carried out in a restrained manner and used with humility and grief. And this is something, uh, that's an interesting element there. We'll see that getting echoed by many Christians saying that even if you serve, you shouldn't rejoice over the death of your enemies. And we'll see, uh, I think it's Martin Luther. We'll see in just a second how he says something like that. When Christians serve in the Roman army, third century, (coughs) churches welcomed home their soldiers not with ticker tape parades, but with the requirement that they retreat and mourn over their participation in killing. Even their participation, even if their participation in war was morally justified. So again, you guys are nodding kind of like, huh, hadn't really thought of that. But I think that fits in uh, a whole lot with the idea that if there is a just war and if somehow Christians um, can support the idea of just war, that you couldn't really support the death of enemies, the death of other human beings. Yeah. 
because it brings forth the notion that, that we failed in terms of negotiation. I didn't see a lot of that in the things I was looking at, but that that makes sense to me. And uh, but someone out not calling it sin, I, I don't know. We'll see in a second. I didn't look at everything, but I did look at like Presbyterian statements on war, and I looked at Quaker statements on war, and so somewhere between those two, Quaker statements is more that it's just no, can't. Whereas Presbyterians would be like last resort. It's a failure. I could see where you could, you could easily say that that. It, it's, it's a wrong, but it's a wrong. We do see that in a language that we'll see in a minute, that it's a wrong that is done because there's a greater right. <laughs> Don't ask me where I stand on this. <laughs> this, is, this is rough. Because, you know, in the, on the one sense, um, I'm kind of, I see the arguments made during World War II, and that makes sense in that context, but some other wars that we've gotten involved in, it's, uh, it's tricky. Okay, that's just a little note about Einstein. All right, so uh, you can see that actually they use biblical verses to kind of support the idea of war up there in the corner. Um, there's a time for war and a time for peace, right? So... I, that is in Ecclesiastes. <laughs> I love Ecclesiastes. It's a, probably the most honest book. But uh, in the Old Testament, in some ways, it's really glaringly honest about a lot of uh, things we don't want to talk about or face. And so there's things about Ecclesiastes that I really like. This would be one of them in the sense that is, is Ecclesiastes saying is, this is a prescription we're supposed to have war and peace, or is it saying, no, there's always going to be war, there's always going to be peace, and there's a time for both? Am I making any sense? Is it saying this is reality, which I think fits more with what Ecclesiastes is trying to say? So I don't think Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes, would necessarily be pleased to say if someone said, well, now that's our excuse. This is time for war. Am I making any sense? It's more like a description rather than a prescription. But in that poster, it's a, it's a prescription. And, and not to say I dislike the poster. Nothing to me ever is totally one thing or another. It seems like there's something kind of beautiful about the fact that he is reaching out to the child. I'm just not so sure about the label. All right. So the main Christian view, if we look at uh, the Catholic Church and, and all, just about every denomination except for the Mennonites and the Quakers, we see that they support the idea of just war. But the assumption of modern Christians that war is rarely justified should be avoided unless just war conditions are met. And I like that he adds this. And that most Christians believe that the standards for just war are more stringent for Christians than for secular governments. Yes? So just because your government is behind it doesn't mean you're automatically behind it if you're coming from a different perspective. Does that make sense? And I think in the Iraq war, a lot of people were doing that kind of soul searching. Christianity is no longer wholly against war, if it ever was, it says. Some say modern Christianity has a presumption against war, others say it's a presumption against injustice. This view says that the aim of Christianity is to promote a world in which peace and justice flourish everywhere. War may be the tool, 
needed to do this and waging war may be a lesser evil. All right, so we also know about Christian pacifism. And I guess one of the key questions is, was Jesus truly a pacifist? And we'll get to that in a second. Christians have a long history refusing to take part in war. And of course, never a popular thing to do, is it? You end up in jail sometimes. Jail at worst, and at best, perhaps given an ancillary position. Christian argument for pacifism based on the Sermon on the Mount, we'll look at that in a second. The whole idea of turn the other cheek, love your enemies, and the example that Jesus set throughout his life, and of course I picked that picture on purpose. Everyone know what story that refers to? Right. Wouldn't you love to go back in time and find out what he wrote on the ground? (laughs) It never says. I love that about the New Testament, or you know that, because if you you came to one of my previous talks about how ingenious Jesus was and always leaving something out, you had to fill it in. And the same thing here, he's drawing on the ground. You're like, what did he draw? We don't know. I would love to go back and just like, that's what he drew. <laughs> was he drawing anything? Was he just scribbling? Did he put somebody's name down? <laughs> what did he put? Those who argue against this say that Christ's pacifist nature and his behavior are part of the unique role as a redeemer of humanity. Christians are not redeemers, so their conduct should follow Christ by bringing peace and justice to the world, even by turning the other cheek. And as you know, the Mennonites and the Quakers have both made public statements against war and refused even military service. Um, the, in 1660, the Quakers declared the spirit of Christ which leads us into truth will never move us to fight and war against any man with outward weapons, neither for the kingdom of Christ nor for the kingdoms of the world. Now, uh, interesting side story. I had a friend of mine who was conscripted to go to Vietnam, and he told them that he was a conscientious objector. Even more, I, I, I know that was a huge thing to declare during World War II, but uh, during the Vietnam War, it was still, you had to be pretty brave, I think, to, to say that. So he told them he was a CO. And he said they'd put him in an office and they, they kept asking him questions and questions and questions for hours. And one of the questions was, if your family, if someone broke into your house and they were uh, raping your family and killing your family, would you fight? He said, well, I guess. That was the end of his CEO. <laughs> he said, well, yeah, in that circumstance, because they'd already asked him, would you fight for your own life? And he said, no. But he said, I would for my family. And they said, well, you're on your way. He said, they sent me to Vietnam, but I was, my, my sergeant was told that I was a CO, so they didn't give me a gun. He said, I wouldn't carry one, and they didn't give me one. And so he said his, 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 uh, his sergeant put him as point man. Like, so I'm walking point with no gun. <laughs> and I told him, I said, I think you're probably the bravest person I've ever met. So there's nothing cowardly about pacifism, is there? I mean, that took a lot for him to do. 
Okay, another reality check. I found this fun little website. Investigating whether the Quran is really more violent than its Judeo-Christian counterpart, software engineer Tom Anderson processed the text of holy books to find out which contained the most violence. By categorizing words into eight emotions, joy, anticipation, anger, disgust, sadness, surprise, fear, anxiety, and trust, the analysis found the Bible scored higher for anger, much lower for trust than the Quran. Further analysis found the Old Testament was more violent than the New Testament and twice as violent as the Quran. Mr. Anderson summarizes. Of the three texts, the content of the Old Testament appears to be the most violent. Killing and destruction are referenced slightly more in the New Testament than in the Quran, but the Old Testament clearly leads with twice that of Quran, mentions the destruction and killing 5.3%. Now, I gotta admit, I'm a little surprised it's only 5.3%, but it still underscores the fact that the Old Testament, at least, seems to really undergird this idea of war and give credence to the idea of war. Now, Anderson also said, I did not set out to prove or disprove Islam is more violent than other religions. <laughs> I'm like, well, why did you do this study? But I see his point, because it doesn't mean anything that there's more violence in the text that people may or may not pay attention to it. Also, he says, um, these aren't the only books that influence um, Christianity, Judaism, or Islam. And he also said that it's kind of a superficial view uh, just a textual analysis. But I think um, things like that are kind of a reality check, that the Old Testament is a very violent book. It seems to advocate for holy war in many cases, and so we have to really rethink what its role is. Another reality check. Christianity has gone along with and supported the Crusades, blessings of wars, Warrior popes, that was always a weird one, when popes actually had armies and went to war. Support for capital punishment, you may not agree with all these things, but this writer sees them as kind of related. If, if you can be violent toward uh, a culture, you can be violent toward individuals. Corporal punishment under the guise of spare the rod and spoil the child. Justifications of slavery, we talked about last week. Worldwide colonialism in the name of conversion, we talked about last week. Systematic violence of women we'll talk about in the weeks to come. Okay, so is it an ugly history? Yes. I've heard many a person, and so have you, say, I can't go to church. I can't support Christianity. I can't support whatever because they're violent, and they've supported these things, and they've been crusaders. I don't argue with those people. Like, that's the reality. We'll see actually how the Presbyterians address this in a second. <laughs> They say what happened was this, and one of my professors put it more succinctly. He said, the worst thing that could ever happen to Christianity is to become popular. And he said, when Constantine declared it the state religion, what happened? It became popular, and those who were persecuted became the persecutors. And Christians began to eliminate factions, get rid of people who disagreed, and the Christianity that we know emerges from those councils, but basically getting rid of heretics and the whole implantation of the idea of, of holy war and bearing the cross into the Middle East. So, despite its tenets of love, Christianity, like most traditions, has had a violent side. Sometimes I like to just call that churchianity. 
because I'm not sure that Christ's name should be a part of it, but it's definitely what happened. Um, Now, this person (laughs) says that even today, people will take this too far and like go blow up an abortion clinic, seeing that as some sort of continuation of the idea of the Holy War. In fact, I found this poster. I was like, holy smokes. I sure hope this guy's not serious. But it was a news report, and they were there at the bombing of an abortion clinic. Okay, so do we seriously need to think about this issue? Yes. Higher law has been used to justify violence by Christian. So it's one thing to say, okay, Christianity supports just war, that sometimes it's a bad choice, and it should be the last of all choices, but sometimes the choice has to be made. Perhaps acknowledging that it's a sin, that it's evil. Um, On the other hand, that seems to be very specific case by case, doesn't it? Not a general attitude of violence towards people who disagree. So what did Jesus say? I went back to these, and you know, it's funny. When you go back, you're like, huh, I forgot the context of this remark. Often we'll quote these things by themselves. He says, you've heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. There's the Old Testament, right? Because that was actually bringing it down. In the Middle East, the common practice was, you know, you, if you attacked me, I'd kill your whole family, right? Your children, everybody. And so it was saying, basically, I can, I can do something to you, but not anybody else. So it was toning it down. Jesus is going to tone it down more. He's going to take another step away from it. But I tell you, and this is what he got criticized for. Remember, the, the Jews would say, he speaks like one who has authority. I tell you, that's crazy talk. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. What? Not to resist an evil person. Now, does that mean we should vote for Roy Moore? I'm sorry, I said it. It's out there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. But I do think it means that I still have an obligation to care for Roy Moore, right? To treat him as a human being. Even if, oh, anyway, I don't want to go any further into that. If anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. The Greeks means open-handed slap. This is the way they would have been slapped by Romans. Yep, Roman soldier comes back, out of the way. Eh, it's a subtext here. We've been slapped by upper-class people, right? And servants of upper-class people. Get out of the way. All right, it's an insult. What are you supposed to do? Don't slap them back. But if you think of it in that context, it makes a little more sense, doesn't it? And plus, it makes practical sense. I was uh, being bullied by a guy in high school, and I slapped him in the face, and he almost killed me. And I'm not kidding. He almost... <laughs> killed me. So maybe it wasn't the wisest move. Maybe there are other ways to deal with the situation. Okay, what I want you to see is that Jesus is not just saying this. A lot of people take it like, well, now I've got to turn the other cheek, and they're not thinking, why? Why? I'm going to say it one more time. Why are you turning the other cheek? It's because it will do no good to slap back, right? 
If I slept back, I've become them, haven't I? That's what he's telling us. Don't become your enemy. Right? Yeah. It's easy to do. Right. He didn't say, you know, don't run <laughs> or don't walk away. Uh, and, or he, he didn't even script out what exactly you might say. But he did say, let them slap the other cheek rather than slap them back. Yes? You've seen this. You know this is true. When things happen to someone, if I, if I just started pushing on you, you'd want to push me back. It's human, isn't it? Oh, I want to hit you. Right. <laughs> it's human, but it doesn't do any good, does it? It's not going to create a relationship between us. It's going to just, I'm just going to start mirroring you. I'm going to become the thing I hate. Yes? If I act like a person that I hate, what am I going to become? And we also know that if you... Uh, uh, slap other people, then you might slap someone just like the Romans slapped you, right? You learn that behavior. That's how you get things done in the world. Like the person that drives too close to your car, they know you're going to get out of the way. Yes? Turn the other cheek, get in the other lane. <laughs> there you go. Wise as a serpent. That's right. This last one is even more annoying. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. I don't know if you've ever been to court. I will admit, because I'm divorced, I've been to court. <laughs> wow, it is like one of the most humiliating things that can happen to you. And it was, that was the last thing I wanted to do. I'll just give her everything, right? Ultimately, I sort of did. My lawyer said, listen, pick what you really want, let her have everything else. It's almost the same thing, right? It's practical, but at the same time, he's saying something more deep than that, right? Because who is going to take your coat? Who is going to sue you for your coat? We, do, we tend to get incensed by everything that people do to us. They slap us. They, they sue us. They do these various things. This is so practical, down to earth, right? People see this as like these esoteric things, but it's very down to earth, isn't it? He's talking about suits, lawsuits. He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Keep reading. What does he say? What's the reason? We go outside today. Because you're a Christian, is it not going to rain on you? No. We know that that's not the way this works. I've heard sometimes churches promise this kind of thing, right? You become a Christian and everything's going to be magic in your life. I'm like, oh man, that's not why you're doing this. If that's why you're doing this, you're not listening, right? So he makes the sun to rise on everybody, right? Doesn't matter. So the point is what about loving your enemies? We're all human, right? So love everybody. Yeah. Don't distinguish. You're my enemy. I don't love you. You're my friend. I love you. No. It's like, I love you all. Is that going to make a difference in your enemy? <laughs> People hate being loved. When, <laughs> when you want to hate somebody and they love you, it's really frustrating. Isn't it? It just, ooh. But it breaks you down. What were you going to say? Well, I guess what jumps out to me is that 
Why not? Right. When I was uh, in college, I used to go, uh, I grew up in the suburbs, so I was kind of a city boy. And uh, I had a friend where I went to college, he lived, he grew up on a farm. So we would go to his house on weekends and it was really cool because he had a whole bunch of brothers and sisters and they had pigs and horses and it was a blast for me. I loved it. Whole different reality. And, um, we were all at the dinner table one night, and they were uh, very much a, um, a, a Christian-identified family. We were at dinner one night, and the son, who's about 13 or so, said something to his dad. And you know how a son can say something to a father that's just so freaking mean that you can't believe he said it? Because it's true. There's some truth in it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But it's mean. I don't remember at all what it was, but I remember it was so mean that if I'd have said it to my father he never hit me but he might have he might have he did at least grab me by the shirt he did that a few times grab me by the shirt collar I don't think so <laughs> I'd at least got the shirt grab or I'd have, at the very least it had been human for the father to stand up and tell him to get out of the room right you just get out so everybody froze. Nobody could even think of anything to say. I think somebody said something like, could you pass the, no. <laughs> Nothing to say. This is horrible. You know what my friend's father said, and it still sticks with me. He goes, thank you, William Wren. You'll never know how much I love you. Wow. It still brings tears in my eyes. I was like, that's how you do it. Right? Because how did William Wren feel? <laughs> the Greeks had a concept called eidos, which means proper shame. Right? Don't be ashamed about everything. Some people are ashamed about everything. But they said, some things you should be ashamed for. <laughs> and he, he was experienced eidos, right? Proper shame. He was out of line. His father loved him. He should not have embarrassed him like that. But, wow, is that what Jesus is talking about? I think so. It's rethinking. It's not, it's acting, not reacting, right? So whatever you wish that others would do for you, do to them. This is the law and the prophets. If that's the law and the prophets, you might as well do that because that's the whole thing. Whatever house you enter, I wanted to put this in because I didn't think of this necessarily in this context. But Jesus sends out the 12 and he tells them, be sure to go to the house of a person of what? Peace. And if they're not a peaceful person, if you judge wrongly, your peace will come back on you. Huh. But still you made the effort, right? Because you went and you said, peace be on this house. Not a bad custom to have, isn't it? To walk into somebody's house and go, peace be on this house. People don't usually do formal things when they walk through doors anymore. If not, though, it would return to you. Now, we'll see that he said other things to the disciples, and that's part of the reason that they're too. Okay, so he's basically telling us to bear insults, to love your enemy, which means, in this case, to not show presidential treatment, because people go, like, love your enemy. Does that mean that I just let them get away with stuff? No, that's not loving them, is it? Did that father let William Wren off the hook? 
I don't think so. But he loved him. The golden rule and be around, be and be around men of peace. All right, he also said, don't judge others as we have seen. Do not judge or you will be judged for the same judgment you pronounce, you will be judged and with the method you use, measure, you will get back. Again, think of that example of the father, right? He gave a pretty big measure. He gave a measure of love. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? It kills me that people will quote this passage to another person to tell them there's a log in their eye. But <laughs> you see the irony? <laughs> if you truly don't have the log in your eye, then you're not throwing logs at anybody. Right? It's like the person going like, I wish that uh, so-and-so were here to hear this sermon. And like, uh, well, why aren't you listening to it? <laughs> and he also reiterates that belief from the Old Testament that God will fight for us. And he tells this kind of lengthy story. Always like this one. It's about, because it's, it's just kind of odd. Um, there's a widow who keeps, keeps coming to a judge. And the judge says, I, I, you know, he refuses, but he finally said, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, because she keeps bothering me, I'll see if she gets justice, and she won't eventually come and attack me. So he, he gives in to her for really pragmatic and stupid, shallow reasons, right? And then, and the Lord says, listen, this is called a Gavahomer, a Kavahomer, uh, how much more argument, right? How much more? So, how much more will God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Jesus is saying, God hears you. And God will bring about justice. God will fight for you. So there's another layer to this. One reason that I don't resist is because I, I'm not the only one involved in the fight. Right? If I'm working for a just world, then there's a synergy. Okay. This is the biggest excuse ever for war. <laughs> Jesus is cleansing of the temple. You're laughing, because you know. This is like, there's like two passages, and everything depends on these. In all four Gospels, Jesus cleanses the temple wielding a whip. It's been interpreted as the basis for just war. But didn't he also say this in John 8:16? But even if I do judge, because he does tell us not to judge, but then he's saying, but even if I do, What? My judgment is true because I'm not the only one doing the judging, right? I'm stepping out of myself. I'm not looking at it just from my selfish point of view, but I'm trying to look at it also, as he says, I am with the Father who sent me. And he also said, of course, this. So what gave him the right to cleanse the temple? Because, add it up, he didn't have any sin. Right? He could judge because you get the idea. People don't add that up. All right, this is also something I hadn't thought about. What did Jesus say to soldiers? Some soldiers come up and say, what's expected of us? You know how they come up, what can I do to be in the kingdom of God? They said, and he said, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely and be content with your pay. That's all he said. Isn't that kind of amazing? He also, a centurion uh, comes to him with a, with a servant, a slave, and Jesus did not set the slave free. He heals the slave, but 
the, the soldier uses the analogy of I have servants. I have people that work for me. So I know that you don't even have to come to my house. Right? And he compares him actually to being, he's basically saying to Jesus, you're a centurion of God. You're a, um, you have your own armies. And Jesus thinks this is a, he says, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. And the servant was well. Another thing that happens is in Matthew 5, 41. It, it also, it usually blandly translates that if someone demands that you carry his gear for a while, uh, carry it for two miles. But it really, if you look at the Greek, he's saying if a soldier, because this was a common Roman practice, they get tired when they're walking along the road, and they just take a Jewish person, hey, come here, carry my stuff. And he tells him what? If he asks you for one, carry it for two. Again, is this a rule or is this thinking strategically? Yeah, so Jesus, instead of saying, let's kill the Romans, let's drive them out, he says, kill them with kindness. But he also said this, another excuse-making one. When I sent you on training missions without money, bag, or knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? But now he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. And then the disciples look around, look, there are two swords, and he said, it is enough. Now the big debate is whether he meant anything about swords at all and whether they were being complete idiots. In, in other words, taking a metaphor literally. Here's some swords, he's like, oh, that's enough. Or did he really, was, but did he mean it symbolically? Like, things are different now. I'm going to be taken captive. You're gonna have to fight. Is he being symbolic? Because he later says, when one of them actually pulls out a sword, what's he tell them to do? If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Again, though, I'm not sure that's as clear as it could be. Is it just a statement of fact? You live by violence, you die by violence? Yes. Or is he saying, don't live by violence? And actually, at the time, there was a group called, uh, developing, they hadn't quite developed, the Jewish zealots, uh, they um, became the Sicarii, the dagger men, and they would do that. They would come and they would stab Romans in the public scares, squares to scare them away. So the first acts of terrorism happened at that time. So Jesus, is he resisting that? Is he telling them, you need to have swords? People have argued. Don't assume I came to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. But keep reading, because people always quote this one out of context. Right? What's he say before it? Yes. So is he talking about swords? Is he talking about being armed? This is the way it's been taken. Or is he saying, things are going to get tough. Your own wife's going to question your sanity. Your children are going to say, what's wrong with you? Right? I didn't come here to make everybody happy. All right, so someone based on this wrote this stupid poster. Slicing coexist in half with a cross on the end. Never forget, tolerance and apathy are the last verses of a dying society. I'm like, where do we get this nonsense? Fortunately, it's been, this site has been taken down. I was pretty happy to find that. But this sword passage has been used to promote hate and intolerance. 
One little passage. But didn't he also say, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? Didn't he also say, all who draw to the sword, die by the sword? Didn't he also say, love your enemies? Didn't he also say, so whatever you wish others wish to do to you? Right? He didn't just say that one thing. And didn't he say this? The good thing out of the good treasure of his heart and the evil brings evil things out of the evil treasure of his heart. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? I found that poster frustrating because what kind of a heart puts that poster together? Summary. Jesus has been portrayed as a pacifist, but I think the scriptures reveal a more varied portrait. It's an oversimplification to say that, even though I think the basics are there. His actions in the temple and statement to bring a sword have been seen as justifying violence. His comments on not judging apply it's not ours to condemn people, but he does admit that we can be in tune with God. And he nowhere challenges soldiers to abandon their occupations, which I thought was interesting. He's talking to a centurion. You think if he were truly pacifistic, he would have said, you know, your occupation's a little questionable. But he didn't. He was a Roman centurion. But I think he kind of looked at it more like, this is a man of great faith. Why would I kick dust in his face? He actually tells his fathers not to resist if Roman soldiers force them to carry their things and encourages his disciples to be men of peace. I have too many slides. So let me just go over very quickly. Uh, here's some things that Martin Luther said in terms of the Reformation perspective. He said, in itself, it is right and godly, but we must see to it that persons who are in this profession, he's talking to soldiers, um, see to it that soldiers are the right kind of persons, godly and upright. He, he said, the very fact that the sword has been instituted by God to punish evil, protect the good, and preserve the peace is powerful, sufficient proof of war and killing have been instituted by God. And there he's reflecting a statement in 1 Peter, submit yourselves to every human authority, whether the emperors or to governors who are sent by God to punish evildoers. Okay, so he kind of goes down on the side of submission to authorities. John Calvin, who had a lot to do with the Presbyterian uh, Reformationist point of view, he said sort of sarcastically, the Anabaptist pacifistic position would be right if we were angels. But the fact is we're, the world is full of cruel monsters and wolves and rapacious men, so the rise of the sword will therefore come to the end of the world. So he says try everything else, but he will support uh, war. He also presided over burning heretics. So what is the Presbyterian policy? The original Presbyterian uh, Westminster, no accident, the church's name, confession says to wage war upon just and necessary occasion. It's the right and duty to force law under internal disorder and external aggression. War at times may be unavoidable. The tragic evil that comes from war, the slaughter of men, women, and children must rouse us to work for peace. Okay, I have a whole bunch of more fun stuff, and I just did something to make everything stop. All right, let me just, there are all kinds of fun things in here, but let me at least end with some conclusions. The Hebrew Bible supports three approaches to war, just war, pacifism, and holy war. The establishment of the Hebrew people in the land of Canaan was a bloody period. Throughout their histories, both Judah and Israel were caught up in bloody struggles for survival. Given this history, Hebrew people supported just war and the holy war policies at their own peril. Officially, the Christian church historically upholds and continues to uphold both just war and pacifist positions, only fairly recently separated itself from the support of holy war. Christian church has, has been complicit in war, violence, inquisitions, pogroms, crusades, persecutions, and genocides. 
The direct words and actions of Jesus don't wholly rule out war and violence for the cause of justice, unfortunately. Attitudes towards both reside, as I said last week, in the principles that he sets up. Reformers like Luther and Calvin supported just war as a last resort, but later in his life, Luther supported suppression of Jews, and Calvin in prison executed those who disagreed. Presbyterian and other organizations must address the sordid history of the church, its relation to war and violence, and positions concerning terrorism, consciousness objection, and gun control. I'm sorry, I couldn't get into those, but if you, if you look at the whole slideshow, you'll see. Something else I wanted to bring up, modern psychologists agree that when we resist something, we actually strengthen it. We've seen this often in the news, where they'll take some really edge view and put, put them on the national news and act like that's another point of view, like people who say the Holocaust doesn't exist, why even put them on the television? But they put them on and it almost makes that view look equal, doesn't it? It's happened with Richard Spencer and the alt-right, where it's just become kind of normalized even though it's a friend's position. So when we give credence to it, we actually strengthen it. So these are psychological reasons why Jesus, I think, is telling this. this. Also, we can't mirror the actions of our enemies or we become the thing we hate. I think those two things are driving everything Jesus is telling us. It's not that he's making rules. He's trying to say, think about it. Think about it. That if your goal is to have relationships with people, if your goal is to love humanity, then you have to strategize. You have to think about how you're approaching these people, how you're responding. So I'm literally going to end with the, the corny... Uh, bracelets with the WWJD. An eye for an eye, Jesus says, don't resist an evildoer. Slapped in the face, turn the other cheek. Execute lawbreakers, Jesus said, there isn't anyone with moral standing to serve. Resist the Roman army, nope, carry their bags. And everything then do as to others as you do unto them, for this is the essence of the law of the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad the way that leads to destruction. Many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow the way that leads to life. So basically, no, don't act like everybody else, right? They're all going through that gate. Go through the narrow gate, the harder gate, the tougher gate, the one that father went through, right? You'll never know how much I love you. Man, there you go. Thank you.